The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening here from New York City. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's program is a very interesting one, and I think it will explore an area that a lot of people who are curious about archaeology are especially curious about in this day and age, and we are talking about the archaeology of China. Um, for years, and certainly when I was a student, China was simply not a major focus of archaeological attention by dint of the fact that it was closed for a very long time to Westerners and, and, and to a lot of international people in archaeology. And second of all, because the uh, information and the research opportunities were simply not there. And, of course, in the past 20 or 30 years, there has been an information explosion everywhere, and certainly China is at the forefront of that. And, of course, that's coupled with the rise politically and geopolitically of China as a great power. And that also has given uh, a tremendous boost to interest by the public and certainly by researchers as well in the archaeology of China. Uh, So I'm very happy today to uh, introduce you to a uh, young scholar who is uh, basically putting together his career and his resume on the archaeology of China. And his name is Rowan Flad, and he is a professor of anthropology at Harvard University. His research is currently focused on the emergence and development of complex societies during the late Neolithic periods and the Bronze Age, which is typically thought of as one of those boost points in archaeology generally worldwide. And for China, we will obviously document that with a degree of precision that we certainly haven't known or certainly hasn't been widely circulated until this point. His research incorporates patterns of change in production and uh, adaptation and the uh, emergence of villages and and the the emergence of commerce and administration, domestication, uh, topics that are probably more widely familiar to our audience for areas like the Middle East and Central, uh, rather, Mesoamerica and the New World. And so 
we're going to be talking about these topics in China, which certainly, as most of you do know, uh, had a very magnificent civilization. Uh, Dr. Uh, Flad has conducted e excavations at a salt production site in the eastern Sichuan Basin and has undertaken archaeological survey, survey in the Jengdu Plain, focusing on prehistoric settlement patterns and social evolution. His current research is uh, focusing on technological change along the Silk Road, which we've talked about in a variety of programs, uh, and this would sort of be on the eastern end of the Silk Road. And uh, again, we were talking about the late Neolithic and early Bronze Age. He has written a number of professional articles and has most recently published a volume called Ancient Central China Centers and Peripheries Along the Yangtze River, which has a bit recently been published by Cambridge University Press in 2013. Uh, Dr. Rowan uh, Flad, uh, welcome to the program. Thanks a lot, Joseph. It's great to be here. Um, thanks for having me. So let's start by looking at how you got interested in the archaeology of China and um, how, how that emerged and how your training sort of brought you into that realm of uh, interest. Yeah, sure. Um, as you mentioned, uh, China is known to, to all of us, I think, as a, as a great and ancient civilization for which um, there's a lot yet to be known. Um, and my interest in it came from uh, initially being involved in archaeology in other parts of the world and deciding, um, for myself at least, that China was a place that I th thought um, some of the major questions in, uh, in anthropological archaeology, particularly uh, related to the emergence of complex societies, uh, required more attention. Um, I started as an archaeologist um, during my undergraduate days at the University of Chicago and uh, while I was there, I was studying anthropology generally, including archaeology, but not exclusively archaeology. Uh, but I was also able to uh, participate in archaeological fieldwork, both in uh, Paleolithic contexts in northern Spain and in, and in Turkey, uh, in uh, a Calcolithic period site, uh, and decided through those experiences that uh, I was really interested in uh, in the lighter Holocene and in the processes of emerging com complexity, the way that... Uh, Soci larger societies developed with uh, political hierarchies and um, integrated uh, social and economic communities. Um, and so I, I started thinking about where in the world that would be uh, most interested, in interesting for me to investigate. Um, and among the places I, I started looking more seriously at as over the year or two that followed that, when I was working as a professional archaeologist for, a, for an engineering firm in New Jersey, I... Um, I settled on China as a place that I thought that was was particularly important. I started studying Chinese and applied to graduate school and fortunately was able to get into one of the best programs for um, studying Chinese archaeology specifically in, in the country. Um, and it just so happened to be at a very good time for that as well in the late 19, uh, mid-1990s mid when uh, China was just beginning to open up to foreign collaboration. Um, and so that's kind of the, the path that took me to uh, studying China in the first place. Let me just backtrack for a second. You raised some very, very critical and interesting points, because uh, where was what was the status of Chinese archaeology, say, at the turn of the 21st century? And I'm asking you that because uh, when I started graduate school, it was really sort of the big unknown. The best um, as a as a geoarchaeologist, my own training sort of um, provided very interesting glimpses into China, insofar as 
as um, people who are doing geological research, especially in the Quaternary and, and, and periods during uh, which early hominids and early people were emerging. There was a lot of geomorphology that was done in China, and yet uh, the archaeology itself was really pretty sparsely known, except you know, for the Peking Man discoveries, and I'm talking about early hominids and, and, mm -hmm. and sort of early uh, quaternary studies. Where was it at, at the year 2000? Where was Chinese archaeology generally? And then where were we as, as uh, you started to get into your complex society things? Yeah, that's a great question, a set of questions. Um, and to understand where we were at the year 2000, we, we actually need to backtrack to the year 1991, um, which is the year when uh, foreign collaborative research was uh, permitted, first permitted, in uh, People's Republic of China. Prior to that, it had been, uh, had been impossible, really, for archaeologists, particularly archaeologists who worked on uh, on the Holocene and the later Holocene specifically to uh, engage in um, primary archaeological research, real field work in China. Yeah. Um, but it was not entirely true that those who were working on uh, the Paleolithic and the Pleistocene were unable to do uh, some aspects of collaboration. And the reason for that uh, relates partly to um, institutional uh, structures within China. Um, the China has two academies um, that follow more or less on the Soviet model, an, an Academy of Sciences and an Academy of Social Sciences. The Academy of Social Sci Chinese Academy of Social Sciences broke off from the Chinese Academy of Sciences in the 1970s. Um, but but uh, in, in and when that happened, the Chinese Academy of Sciences retained researchers who were interested in. Uh, environmental change, geology, and consequently also in the Pleistocene and Paleolithic archaeology. Um, to this day, the Institute of Vertebrate Paleontology and Paleoanthropology, which is the primary research institute at the national level in China that engages in, uh, in Paleolithic research, is within the Chinese Academy of Sciences, within this uh, unit called the IVPP. Um, whereas uh, archaeology that was focused on later periods, um, primarily and throughout much of the 20th century on the really latest part of the Holocene and the period associated with the Chinese uh, empires, but also into the prehistoric period. That uh, research was conducted within um, uh, the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences in a, in a group called the Institute of Archaeology. Um, and so it was archaeologists within the Institute of Archaeology and also archaeologists who worked on, later, on the later Holocene in universities and, and in research institutes within provinces around China that were essentially forbidden from any um, formal collaboration with uh, outside archaeologists. Um, the, the restrictions were not as severe for people conducting geological work or other environmental work. And so as, as insofar as those, that research blended into uh, Paleolithic research, there were kind of dribs and drabs of collaboration as, as early as the 19, late 1970s. There was even a... Um, a delegation of foreign uh, Paleolithic archaeologists that uh, visited China uh, in the 1970s, um, and there were kind of uh, interactions at meetings. The, the fields were ten tended to be more international, um, and so Chinese scientists who were engaging in geological research, for example, were able to um, engage on an international level more easily and earlier than archaeologists were. And archaeologists, ar archaeology in many institutions in China. Um, 
began as a uh, very clearly as an archeolo- as a historical discipline and, and archaeological departments that exist down, exist now in many universities throughout China were, came out of history departments they originally were in history departments so these kind of um, administrative differences uh, I think affected the field quite a bit and so um, whereas and so it's not surprising that when there were the first formal collaborations after 1991 in terms of archaeology in China some of them were uh, focused on paleolithic sites there was uh, extensive research done at Jokudian for example um right. that involved uh, Paul Goldberg uh, in terms of geoarchaeology along with Ofer Bar Yosef and um other uh, uh, other scholars from outside of China who were who were collaborating with Chinese archaeologists uh in the early 1990s um uh, and uh, also, in, in there were a few other projects that kind of got started then. There were, it was also in the 1990s where uh, archaeological research that focused on later periods, now that it was permitted, began. Um, but it was a little bit more slow to get off the ground because uh, groundwork and foundations and relationships had to be uh, created more or less from scratch. Um, so it was only kind of in the mid-1990s, in the later 1990s, that um, a few uh, really larger-scale collaborations um, uh, developed. And so I entered the field kind of in that milieu, and then in, in 2000, which is the kind of date you arbitrarily asked about, um, there were already a few projects that were kind of substantially underway, um, but it was they were basic – they were uh, – mainly involving people who were uh, involved in Chinese archaeology for quite a long time prior to that, but who had had very, from the, out, from the outside, had had very little um, uh, ability to uh, engage in actual field work within China. So as a graduate student, I entered the time, at the time when it was really possible to get engaged from the very beginning in one's career uh, in field work within China um, and, uh, and, and develop Kind of as as many as scholars in many parts of the world do uh, through kind of the dissertation progress and, and post dissertation as a, as someone who's engaging kind of continuously in field work. And we will take a brief break at this point and then resume our discussion with uh, Dr. Rowan Flad about his research in China and more generally into the emergence of, of research generally for later periods in prehistory in China after these words. Stay tuned. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What can you find on Get Real Radio? Well, quite honestly, who you really are. 
Join host James Robinson each week for a program designed to reveal more about yourself and your world through words of wisdom and profound guests. You'll discover more about the spiritual movement and how it can work with you and alert you to problems you may not be aware of. It will educate, titillate, and enlighten your mind. Get Real Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This could end up being the best time of your week. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Uh, we're back. This is Joe Schildenrein, and we are talking about uh, the emergence of Chinese archaeology, and we will uh, get into the particular focus of my guest, uh, Dr. Rowan Flatt. I just uh, wanted to bring to our public, uh, to the public, to the listenership, uh, a little bit of additional, more generic background. Uh, Rowan was talking in the earlier segment about the sort of the convergence of the natural sciences and the social sciences with respect to early prehistoric archaeology, and that would link the uh, Paleolithic or the old stone age with the Pleistocene or the period about two million years ago and subsequent up until uh, really 10,000 years ago in which the natural sciences, for lack of a better explanation, sort of form an umbrella for looking at the evolution of stone tool making technologies and early subsistence patterns with with the broader environmental changes of the past um, a million plus years. Whereas once you get into the post-glacial period, what we call the Holocene, the last 10,000 years ago, then all of a sudden complex societies emerge and there are more, uh, natu- there are more dynamics in, in, in the human ec- ecosystems and human adaptations. And it becomes a much more complex series of studies in many ways in which the social emergences and, and the economic and political structures that have fashioned early societies come into play. And that becomes, in terms of the discipline of archaeology, sort of a more um, separate type of an operation that uh, I, th- I assume has some geopolitical implications in societies like China. And Rowan, why don't you take it from there and, and sort of break us into uh, or, or, or segue us, if you will, into your own research from that point? Sure. I mean, as I mentioned before, the, the discipline of archaeology, particularly with archaeology focused on the Holocene, on the, the last several thousand years, um, uh, in the post-glacial period, what emerged out of the discipline of history. And the primary reason for that is um, that the, the greatest attention within uh, uh, archaeological research um, in China has been focused on trying to understand um, the connection between, uh, the, uh, between historical texts, both what they contain and what they don't contain, 
um, in, in China um, and the beginnings of Chinese civilization, essentially the fount of Chinese civilization, where the, the Chinese have come from, where uh, the, uh, the Chinese dynastic cycle emerged from. Um, and this relates primarily to a period known in Chinese history as the, the Three Dynasties period, um, which the three dynasties being uh, the, the, the Xia, the Shang, and the Zhou. Um, uh, the, the connection between uh, research on the Xia, Shang, and Zhou and, the, and historical documents and archaeology um, was uh, made very early in the development of the discipline in China when um, archaeologists uh, within China were able to identify the earliest evidence of uh, writing within uh, the Chinese context, still what remains the earliest evidence of writing even to today, um, and noticed both that it connected directly to the writing system that is used in China today, but also that the, the earliest paleographic materials found through archaeological research um, uh, were able to verify some of the uh, received texts um, that were that really only date to the end of the um, first millennium BC and later, um, but purport to discuss earlier time periods as as early as um, two thousand years uh, prior. Uh, so, so what and, is the age of writing in China? Would you say? So, the earliest uh, writing that we have evidence for it dates to about uh, twelve fifty BC. Um, there have been fairly uh, good arguments that um, the beginnings of the writing system that we have uh, uh, evidence for it dates back a little bit earlier than that, um, but perhaps not substantially, not, not, not a lot earlier than that. Um, and those documents come from a place called Inshu, which is the last capital of the Shang Dynasty near the modern city of Anyang in, in Henan province in China. Um, and uh, those documents are in the form of a corpus of bones on which there were inscriptions. Um, these are called oracle bones uh, because the purposes to which the bones were put in the Shang context was for divination. Um, and so the, the divination bones that have been found with inscriptions uh, within the context uh, near Anyang um, were those uh, were those items that were that were um, able to demonstrate this kind of direct connection between historical documents, which prior to the introduction of archaeology in the early 20th century were the only means uh, by which uh, aristocrats and scholars uh, used to kind of investigate the past of the Ch of Chinese civilization um, and the archaeological record. So even though around the same time. Um, the initial discoveries were being made uh, of prehistoric materials, materials that predate the, uh, the earliest stages of kind of textual uh, discussions, so discussions within the text about the beginnings of Chinese civilization, even though we had uh, even earlier materials coming out of uh, archaeological sites um, in the 1920s and so forth. It was the, fine, it was the discovery of uh, these documents that connected archaeological research to historical research that were really at the fount of the discipline. And they, main, and they strengthened the tie uh, or created a tie and then and, and, and made it strong between history as a discipline that has much deeper roots and archaeology as a young discipline that was another means by which we could understand the past. So my, my interest um, in China really was, uh, from the very beginning, focused on trying to understand the beginnings of this process of emergent civilization. Um, and uh, the... Uh, relationship of 
archaeological data to both the received textual tradition um, that purported to talk about the early stages of Chinese civilization and these very early texts um, that were primary documents from one stage within this developmental process um, were were all very important to me in terms of my uh, kind of development of understanding of, of the beginnings of Chinese civilization and and were uh, and and as I got the opportunity to do field work within China, um, the connections between historical research and archaeological research became even more developed. I ended up, as, as you mentioned, um, working for my dissertation um, on a site within the, the Three Gorges, uh, the eastern part of the Sichuan Basin. Um, the Three Gorges um, is a region along the Yangtze River where the world's largest dam now sits. Um, and I was getting involved in research there just as the dam was being uh, constructed, um, and I was able to be involved in a team that was part one of many teams attempting to mitigate the uh, uh, the loss of information that was going to occur once the dam was completed and the reservoir filled up behind the dam. Um, so I would I would just ask you about that because this was uh, obviously of worldwide significance for archaeology, much in the way that the Aswan Dam construction affected uh, the sort of the pattern of uh, Egyptian archaeology forever. What was that like, and at what stage did you get involved in this very massive project? Yeah, so I was fortunate to be able to get in, involved, you know, relatively early, not at the very beginnings, the very beginnings of. of an initial survey of the region that was going to be impacted by the dam uh, took place in the early 1990s. Um, and in fact, there, uh, related to what we were talking about before, um, the uh, beginnings of international collaboration was first thought within China to be um, a way that uh, the resource, resources from outside of China could be brought to bear to assist in the massive mitigation project that was um, staring the Chinese uh, archaeological community in the face at this time. So when the first surveys took place in the early 1990s, um, there was even uh, in, in the minds of some of the leaders of this project, the, the Three Gorges um, uh, uh, project, uh, the the uh, the belief that there, this could be a really uh, good place to have some of the first collaborative research done. It turned out um, kind of to be uh, only an area where collaborative research was done in in a, in a very kind of convoluted and, and uh, 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 roundabout way. But that's kind of a separate story. Right. Working working there was um, uh, was very interesting um, because we were both engaged in research in an area where very little archaeological work had been done previously, but also in an area where there was this time pressure. Um, and uh, the dam was being built along a certain schedule, and the archaeologists working there were essentially faced, uh, forcing, uh, faced to deal with this, with this um, uh, impending endgame when the sites right. that we were working on were going to be underwater. Uh, I ended up working with a team uh, from the Sichuan Provincial Institute of Archaeology and Peking University that was focused on a site that had long been suspected to be an early salt production site. And the, the reason why this connects to what we were talking about just a moment ago in terms of the relationship between historical documents and, and archaeological materials is that um, uh, salt has always been known to be one of the most important commodities within uh within Chinese history because salt and iron were monopolized periodically throughout the imperial period, throughout the period from the Han Dynasty onward. 
uh, 2,000 years ago till the present, um, as really critical for state finance. Um, and so understanding both how iron production was organized and connected to state finance um, and how, it, how iron and, and, uh, and salt as well, and iron and salt were, were both made and connected to state finance, is an important historical problem um, that has uh, received attention in history quite a bit in terms of uh, trying to understand salt administration um, uh, procedures and, administ- uh, and administrative structures and so forth. But very little attention, surprisingly, um, had been uh, focused on understanding uh, salt production and even iron production, although that had received a bit more attention uh, from an archaeological standpoint. Um, part of the reason for that is that salt doesn't preserve very well. And so to, un- to investigate salt production, one needs to investigate the tools that are used for salt production um, and investigate the ways in which uh, salt manufacture and trade impacted other elements of the preservable uh, archaeological record. Um, the site that I ended up getting involved in was a site where uh, not only it was located next to a um, a village that had long been known in historical periods, even up through the 20th century, as a salt-producing location, um, but the uh, remnants of, uh, of prehistoric material that were evident on the site um, in early surveys were not similar to other ceramics, mostly ceramics I'm talking about, were not similar to other ceramics from the region from the same time period, and yet quite similar in many ways to materials known from salt production sites around the world, in many different parts of the world. Uh, And so that uh, lent us to believe that this was an important location for early salt production, and and our subsequent investigations of the site really uh, uh, supported that uh, interpretation and have helped us understand quite a bit more about the way salt production was organized and how it was connected to larger regional uh, uh, connection networks and so forth. And we'll be back with this very fascinating discussion on Chinese archaeology, the uh, flooding and creation of the dam along the Yangtze River, and salt production. Once we get back after these words, please stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, Hosted by Chris FSCU, Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. He'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live 
the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back uh, to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. In today's episode, we're very pleased to have Dr. Rowan Flad, who is a professor of anthropology at Harvard University. And we are talking about the emergence of Chinese archaeology and specifically the uh, significance of salt production in both bringing together Chinese researchers and foreign researchers when China sort of opened up to archaeology in the mid-1990s and, and well into the 21st century. Uh, the impetus also being, of course, the uh, construction of the huge dam along the Yangtze River. So, uh, Rowan, why don't you tell us a little bit about the significance of salt and how both sets of researchers, yourself and your Chinese uh, colleagues, how your approaches sort of converged on salt and, and, and how you learned from each other in uh, developing that uh, theoretical framework for pursuing the archaeology. Yeah, sure. Um, as, as I mentioned, as, as we got this project underway, um, there was already the expectation that the site we were working on was one that was related to early uh, salt production um, uh, within this region of China, an area that was known to have uh, salt uh, uh, resources that were exploited um, uh, extensively in historical periods, um, particularly in the central part of the Sichuan Basin. Um, and uh, this is an area on the edge of the Sichuan Basin where these salt sources were more easily accessible um, during earlier stages. And now we know it was one of the earliest places within inland China where, uh, where salt sources were exploited and, and used for, uh, for trade and, and various purposes. Um, and so as we got into the, 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 the project, uh, I joined a team that had been already conducted one season, um, one full season of excavations at the site that was led by an archaeologist from the Sichuan Provincial Institute of Archaeology named uh, Sun Jirbin. And um, uh, uh, Dr. Sun's um, uh, interests were um, focused on some of the traditional questions that archaeologists in China uh, tend to focus on, which relate to um, both uh, kind of time and space dynamics, how you connect a particular site, uh, a newly uh, discovered site or uh, site under new excavations to uh, broader regional understandings of of, uh, of uh, cultural traditions, so how we nail down the, the chronological frame of that uh, site um, and connect it to other places that are better known so that we can understand essentially the cultural history within which it fits. So that's one right. element of uh, of Chinese research that is foundational and actually of, of archaeological research anywhere um, that's fun, fundamental because if you don't understand uh, the cultural history uh, sure. structure, you can't really say anything else. Um, and that's a primary research of, uh, of uh, a primary, that was a primary focus of, of their team's research. And in addition, with this kind of, under, with this understanding that the site was more likely than not associated with uh, early salt production, 
Um, I think demonstrating that uh, at a kind of very basic level was important to uh, his team. Uh, what was less uh, kind of, I think, important on the outset for the research conducted, uh, being conducted by the Chinese archaeologists that we joined um, was understanding um, kind of that the question of salt production and the connections between this salt production site and other sites um, in terms of uh, other spheres of, uh, of interest, uh, other uh, uh, broader questions of kind of social, social significance um, and um, kind of more anthropological models of how uh, the production, for example, can be organized and understood, um, how uh, salt as one type of commodity might connect to other types of things being made both at that site and others and so forth. Um, and so I think what our team was able to do is add another level of uh, types of questions to the broader research uh, uh, strategy that was being conducted at the site. So for example, um, and this, this played itself out both methodologically and in terms of the types of um, interpretations and, and publications that have come out of the project. Methodologically, it played itself out um, in terms of uh, uh, transformations in the strategies we were using within the site to gather data that were relevant to the types of questions, for example, that we were interested in um, uh, coming kind of into the picture, um, That, uh, but data that may not have have been that important to collect um, for the kind of broader cultural historical um, uh, questions that were being asked by our Chinese colleagues. So we, in the the site was being excavated as is the tradition within China in fairly large excavation uh, areas, um, excavation units. Uh, these started off in the case of our Chinese colleagues with five meter by five meter units. Really. Yeah, and then expanded to 10 meter by 10 meter units once huh. the stratigraphy was reasonably well understood. That's uh, something. Is, that's that's really unusual. It's it's unusual in North America. It's quite common in China and in the Near East, right? For example. Yeah, in the so, Near East it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, much more so. Correct, right? Yeah, and so this is this follows that sort of model where you're trying to understand big sites with that have sometimes have quite deep stratigraphy. We were dealing with a mound essentially of garbage, right? a mound of refuse from salt production. It turns out that was 15 meters high. Right. And and going back to the question of kind of of time constraints, um, the. Uh, expectations of the of the kind of, of the administrators who governed the funding that was coming to various research institutes within the Three Gorges Zone was that anywhere you opened up uh, an excavation area, you would get to sterile soil within one season, like, through fifteen meters of, of, of ceramics uh, inter interlayered with features and so forth. Now, of right. course, most sites in the zone are not fifteen meters of, of midden, but um, nevertheless, there wasn't very. It, it was difficult to get flexibility in these sorts of things. So. In, in large part, our colleagues were faced with the need to quickly understand the general character of this of this very complex stratigraphy, um, and also at the same time get a fairly under, good understanding of the uh, uh, the distribution of materials across the site. So you have both uh, large open excavations and the need for getting down deep into a, a very complex midden at the same time within a very short time frame. So um, how do you how do you staff something like this and how do you mm -hmm. are you working uh, two groups one Chinese one international group how did that get staffed and how did that kind of excavation get coordinated? 
Yeah, so I mean, so they have uh, had a big team. Um, most, uh, although it wasn't that big by by some standards, because the number of archaeologists, of trained professional archaeologists involved, was reasonably small, less than uh, less than a dozen, I think, um, in in total on site. But we have had many, many local villagers who are working with us, um, conducting most most of the um, their dirt movement, and and in the end, uh, also. In, for part of the site in screening and, and separating out our artifacts and so forth. But I mean, I mentioned screening because what you don't typically do if you need to move 15 meters of uh, midden in uh, two years or four years <laughs> um, in a constricted time period is screen everything. And no, you so don't. There are these constraints on, ever, on, on many things that we, that, that allow you, if you can implement them, to collect the sort of data that um, uh, that allow that permit the addressing certain types of questions. Where if you have a much more coarse uh, excavation strategy, you're, it's much more difficult to be confident about the 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 relation the relations between the data you're collecting and the right. questions you want to ask. And so, so you're we looking then, at broader relationships. You're looking at structural relationships and not necessarily finer grained operations here. Exactly, and so our interests require data that were um, relevant to finer grained operations, and therefore we were able to select a component of the site where we were much slower. <laughs> the international group, which was small, me and a couple colleagues, and um, were uh, uh, not really under the same constraints as the other team in terms of getting to sterile soil in one season and so forth. And right. so we were able to screen everything and go more slowly and. Uh, um, produce the sorts of data that would then complement the data being collected across the broader site um, and yet uh, uh, address certain types of qu- uh, questions at least for the places that we were collecting data from um, yes. so for example I mean one of the one of my particular interests was understanding um, the way in which uh, the ceramic vessels that were used to produce salt at this site, and that's the, uh, just simply, uh, uh, briefly, the um, production of salt in this location was based on brine, naturally effluent brine that came out uh, originally through kind of brine springs and then was channeled through through wells. Um, and that brine was then boiled or otherwise heated, evaporated, and sure. turned to salt. And um, so ceramic vessels were important throughout the period when the site was used, which is over 2,000 years um, uh, of, of pre-iron. Uh, subsequently, there, were, there's, it became, there comes a period when iron pans are introduced, and then those become the vessels in which uh, the salt has evaporated for, for the next couple thousand years. But the first 2,000 years of activity at the site involved ceramic vessels that were used in various ways. And so... Uh, through the initial excavations, the kind of coarser scale excavations, you can understand what the types are and that there were these kind of changes in the func- in the types and probably the functions they served of ceramics associated with, with salt production. But, if, but we were really interested in understanding within phases where you have similar types of vessels being used, but the phases are still quite long, how much change there was in terms of uh, questions of standardization, how, sure. uh, how similar the vessels were really to one another. And you can kind of get a sense of that from non-systematically collected material. But if you really want to address that uh, in a way that's convincing both to yourself and to people who you're going to uh, talk to about these data, you 
need to have great control over the data and be sure that the, the ceramics you're talking about are representative of those from a particular time period or phase or what have you. And that's where the, the screen, one of the places where the screening came into uh, a great deal of importance. Another was in, in the collection of other types of materials from these, uh, this midden, such as animal bones. Um, there were animal bones kind of picked up here and there within the stratigraphy across the site. Um, but, in the, uh, but only in the cases where kind of larger bones or relatively impact, in, in, intact pieces were evident during excavation. Right. When we were screening, we were able to collect everything. And we, were, we collected 300,000 bones within one small area of the site in the area where we were screening all the material from. Um, and, and that's a kind of radically different, it provides a radically different um, uh, data set than what would, have, that when what would have been collected had we not been involved, had it, had it only been kind of a much uh, quicker, coarser uh, uh, methodology used throughout the entire area of the site. Now, was um, that message communicated to your Chinese colleagues? Did they understand that the methodologies and that the approaches that you guys were using were very, very different and produced a, a sort of a different stage of resolution? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the people we're working with are, are professionals, and they, um, although many of them are trained in uh, a tradition, particularly in the 1990s, that uh, rarely involved um, uh, kind of much finer grain excavation techniques, at least not for large Holocene period sites. Um, of course. The... Uh, there was, I think, nevertheless, a recognition that if you have the resor- inf- infinite resources and time, you, of course, yes. want to do all this. But they never do. And, and most of these guys <laughs> that we were working with are professional archaeologists, meaning that they're doing this more as, as much for a paycheck as they are to you know, publish uh, uh, research articles and peer-reviewed journals. And therefore, they do what's asked of them, and they do it very professionally and very well, but right. are not pushing the methodological envelope sometimes. Um, however, when you get these crazy foreigners who are coming in and, and have a good relationship and, and kind of develop one over time, um, and they want to do things slightly differently, I think that the the, the, um, the data collection advantages were obvious. Now, exactly what the relevance of those data were towards broader questions may not have been obvious for all of the uh, our collaborators, but I think it certainly was for the for the director and for other individuals who were involved in the both planning and publication of the materials from the site. So that's a totally different perspective that I, I think you obviously had to portray, and uh, mm-hmm. I guess there was a lot of cross fertilization in that connection. And we will we be be back with our guest. Um, Dr. Rowan Flad, after these messages, don't go away. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Chinese archaeology is the topic of the day, and my special guest is Dr. Rowan Flatt, a professor of anthropology at Harvard University. And Rowan is explaining to us the nature of excavation in some of the sites he's been working in in China, and specifically insofar as they relate to salt production, which was a pivotal component of those excavations. What are some of the key, more interesting finds that you and your colleagues made in the course of those excavations? Well, I, I think we, we just were able to discover a lot of things um, about a region that really had had very little work done before. And one of the, the one of the one of the many uh, aspects of the material we recovered that I found particularly fascinating was the discovery of a number of um, of oracle bones. Now, I mentioned oracle bones earlier as the uh, the medium on which the earliest writing in China was found in in, in Hunan. Well, these bones were similarly used for divination, but didn't have any writing on them. They were burned bones. Um, all of them were uh, fragments of turtle plastrons, breastplates of turtles. Um, and they belong to a broader tradition of, uh, of divin- divination materials that are spread around China from the later part of the Neolithic through the Bronze Age and became a really important um, aspect of uh, state divination process- processes um, in the periods where we have historical records. Um, and uh, and so I found these particularly fascinating because they reflected uh, something that was not obvious uh, to me going into this project, and I don't think was obvious really to any of uh, the collaborators at first, which is that um, although this was a specialized salt production site that had very clear evidence uh, for the manufacture of salt using various types of tools, and that through those tools we could understand salt production and, and even the kind of role that salt played more broadly in, um, the, in the regional economy. Um, there were also materials from the same context that relate to other types of uh, related activities, um, uh, activities related to both salt production, but also what the salt was used for, the salting of meat and creation of fish sauce, for example. Right. The, um, and, and these bones, I, I believe, the oracle bones, these divination, uh, f- fragments of divination um, materials that were found within the same middens, I, I believe have, had to do with um, concerns that the salt producers had over the um, 
effectiveness of uh, different types of technological developments that they were introducing or changes that they were making or a particular season's salt yield or what have you. I think, um, and what it, re- what it made me realize um, more than I had previously was how uh, intertwined uh, different realms of uh, social practice are, how uh, uh, economic activity and political activity and, and um, ritual behavior, ritual practices and so forth um, may in some ways be distinct from one another, but are nevertheless completely overlapping and, and connected. And, and the, the book that you mentioned, uh, the one that I published uh, with my colleague Po Chen Chen uh, last year, uh, Ancient Central China, is, is focused on this question of how kind of interla- uh, in, in, interlocked and overlapping um, realms of human behavior and practice um, can be mapped out over regions and what by what doing so and, and disaggregating them and then reconnecting those types of uh, activities uh, helps us do helps us understand about um, past human behaviors. Um, it's something uh, that connects to my broader interest in, in technology, like this connection between ritual technologies and economic technologies and so forth. Uh, and it's something I'm pursuing now uh, with a new project up in, up in northwestern China, um, looking at the, the proto-Silk Road, kind of the beginnings of uh, the long-distance uh, networks of interaction that connected uh, China proper to to Central Asia, uh, both and to South Asia through um, uh, the the Hushi Corridor uh, in in northwest China and through uh, the mountainous region on the on the western edge of the Sichuan Basin towards the, towards Southeast Asia and, and southern China. And so, I'm working in an area now in, in Gansu. We're looking at technology um, as as the focus, um, and the way that different types of technologies changed um, during this um, axial age at the beginning of kind of emergent civilization of the the late third millennium and early second millennium BC, which I think is really a, a critical period for understanding emergent complexity across East Asia. Right, and you're looking at a period that probably lagged just a hair behind what we know about the third millennium BC uh, emergences of complex societies in the Middle East. It's just, I guess, a little bit of a lag, about five, six, seven hundred years. And then you're starting to look at essentially a bridging effect between the uh, Chinese culture and uh, obviously the uh, the passage into via the Silk Road into the Middle East and into uh, Central Asia and South Asia and beyond. So I'm as, I'm, I'm curious about the variability in the archaeological record and how you're able to uh, divine some divine. I'm using that, that word because of you. <laughs> how, how you're getting into understanding connections and starting to establish, I guess, some of the earliest bridges and links between cultures that extend all the way into the eastern part of Asia. How are you picking up on that? Well, so what we what we're primarily looking at are those technologies that. Um, for one reason or another, reflect uh, uh, long-distance interactions because we know that their origins lie in one direction or another somewhere else than where we're looking at. So, um, And it, you have both uh, technologies that seem to have their roots further west in Eurasia and some that are, uh, that are uh, emerging from eastern parts, places to the east of where I'm working. Uh, including uh, different types of animals, such as goats and sheep and horses, 
um, and cattle, um, which have their roots further to the west, and pigs, for example, that have their um, kind of domesticated domesticated pigs that have their roots further to the east. Uh, we have we can see this in plant remains as well, um, in terms of wheat and barley and millets, in, in kind of from different directions, um, metallurgy uh, and so forth. But what I'm really particularly interested in is understanding how low how, how specific localities how uh, um, uh, locations within a broader network uh, reflect kind of reflect local changes in light of a broader set of globalizing processes that may be creating uh, longer distance connections no one place um, uh, and communities in no one place will react in the same way as another and so looking at kind of both the local instantiation of uh, broader global, for lack of a better word, processes are, is really one of, of the foci of this research. And so I think you're sort of, at this point, you're at the cutting edge of some very major research, uh, sort of filling in the gaps on the eastern end of the Silk Road, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. I mean, we're, we're, we're really looking into uh, contributing to that literature and also understanding the relationship between our env- environmental change and technological change, which has been a, a really... Um, uh, important and uh, increasingly uh, significant question in, in light of kind of modern day climate change and so forth. Understanding how local communities react to environmental change and what wh- how that's reflected in technological in technology use is something that we hope to investigate in the Silk Road area. And I think that is a topic for another time, but certainly one of the more pivotal topics for uh, upcoming discussions when we uh, in, a, in a world in which archaeology is becoming increasingly and paradoxically relevant to questions of contemporary environmental change, that should be an avenue of exploration in the next few years. Uh, we have to wrap this up in a very fascinating discussion with my guest um, Dr. Rowan Fled, and I want to thank you Rowan for being part of our program and uh, for the rest of you uh, keep Keep listening. We will be on again next week at this time. And until then, stay well, and we will see you again. Thank you, and good evening. Thanks a lot, Joe. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.